0: Been thinking this week about a friend of mine. I'd like to share a little bit about him with you for a second before we read our scripture passage, because the scripture passage has him running around in my head. Um, His name is Drew, and Drew was a part of the church in Atlanta that my wife and I uh, co pastored before coming here to Austin. We started this church, as many of you know, in our living room, and it kind of grew from there. Uh, And Drew was one of the people that was a part of our church. Now he wasn't one of the original ones there, but he he came pretty early on. And part of my memory about Drew was that he was only there because his girlfriend wanted him to go to church and because his friends were a part of our church. So which meant he showed up very infrequently. He came in late normally when he was there and he radiated boredom throughout the service. (laughs) Like, and when we're up here, we do see you, right? We can read your body language. But he didn't even try to hide it. It was just like, oh, like how long can he talk? And you're like, pretty long. Actually, that's one of my spiritual gifts. So it could take a while, right? I got to know Drew one Sunday for the first time. Uh, I kind of ran into him and his buddies after the service, and, and he was really nice. Uh, he had this fascinating story. Uh, he, said, he said, you know, I was raised in the church, um, but this is, this is not my faith. This is not what I believe. This is not what, he goes, but what I do believe about Jesus is that uh, he was a really good teacher. I think that's important to say. I hear that a lot. I've had people say that to me in the last couple of weeks. Uh, I'm sure many of you might think that. It's like, hey, I'm not here, but I think he's a good teacher and and everything else. It's like trying to create that common ground, which is good. And and, and it's like, I'm almost, we're basically the same. It's just that last little bit, right? That I'm not, but this is what I think. Drew was a young guy, he was in his 20s when I met him. He had graduated from college, he had gotten into a commercial real estate in Atlanta, and through his own just abilities, but also through some good circumstances, he had crushed it in the commercial real estate argument. By the end of his 20s, had experienced more su- career success than, well, certainly than I ever will. But it, it, he had done things that most people in their 20s just career-wise hadn't gotten to. And so he, he. Um, his life started to change because of that. This is how a number of us move from Jesus is just teacher to maybe I need something more in my life. I I remember him saying in that conversation to me, uh, you know, I I believe he's a teacher, uh, and I know that God you know, just can't let anybody go and anything go because we've got to account for evil in the world. But he said, you know, I basically think I'm one of the good guys. But then as he experienced so much of this world has to offer him, there was something growing in him that he would now say, or would say at the time, is like, this is not enough. I mean, I've got the things most people are searching for. It's really not all that great. Don't really feel any more fulfilled. Don't really feel any more excited. And what that led to was a lot of bad decisions in his life. Started making some decisions that were self-destructive. Started making some decisions like he was bulletproof. Started making some decisions like the rules didn't apply to him the same way they did to everybody else. And he hurt some people. He hurt the person he was dating who broke up with him. He hurt a lot of his friends, including friends who were in our church. But rather than giving up on him, these friends kept pursuing him, kept loving him, kept forgiving him, and long story short, reached a point in Drew's life where he realized what many of us have realized. The whole idea of good guys and bad guys is an illusion. They're circumstances, but all people are flawed. All people are broken. All people are sinful and it plays out in different ways he came to realize that in his own life and so he was through a series of events led to celebrate the goodness of the fact that he was a person who was forgiven that God saw him that God loved him that God um, could forgive that and that he could start not with guilt and shame to rebuild his life but could begin with I am forgiven and I am loved and I'm gonna live into that he became a Christian Jesus went from a teacher to Messiah and Savior. Now, the image I have of Drew, and it's been going through my head this week, was the first Sunday that he came to church after he became a Christian, because it wasn't in a church service that happened. It happened in his apartment with, uh, with some friends, but what happened was he came to church, and we knew he was coming. We knew what had happened in his life, and he, things were different. He got there early. He didn't look like he was resentful from the moment he walked in the door. He came and talked to us about it. And we had this tradition at our church where we served communion every week. Every single Sunday, we ended the service by serving communion on a weekly basis. And, uh, and at a church like Covenant, and I just want to say this is a good rule. I'm not trying to change the rule. I'm not trying to challenge the rule. For all you polity people, I'm not challenging anything here. But in our church, in an established uh, 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 chartered church, there is a rule in our denomination that ordained people serve communion. So pastors, but elders, deacons, I think it's a good rule. I'm okay with the rule. I'm not trying to change the rule. I want that to be clear. For you who are like, oh, I don't like the," I'm not changing the rule. <laughs> However, at our church at the time, which was a new church, which was not chartered, we weren't allowed to have elders or deacons. And so without that, that minute, we could have anybody serve communion because there were no offices the way we think of them. And so we looked at Drew and we said, hey man, what if you serve communion today? He's like, what? I was like, what if, what if you serve communion? Beth and I are talking, what if you serve communion today? He goes, no, nah, I can't do it. And we said, well, why can't you do it? He goes, I don't know what to say. I was like, well, you're a really smart guy. The body of Christ, the cup of salvation, you can do this. Like, I mean, it's not the words. He goes, no, nah, I can't do it, I'm not going to do it. And we said, why aren't you going to do it? He said, I'm not going to do it because I don't deserve to because I don't have the requirement to serve communion. And my wife, and if any of you are in her Bible studies, or or she has this great way of language, and and she's really smart, which is frustrating in our marriage at times, that she can (laughs) do this stuff. But she looked at him and goes, Drew, knowing you're not deserving of it is what makes you deserving. The only requirement is that you know you're not deserving of it. See, I take, she did that in like four words. I take 76 words to do it. <laughs> By the end, he would have agreed to serve, not because he believed. He was just like, all right, just stop talking, and I'll serve. I'll do, I will don't I do even know why. I'll do whatever you would. just Go through the service. Sermon was too long, probably. Uh, the, the, Beth was preaching. The, um, she wasn't. I, I was preaching. Um, when it comes to communion, Drew stands up to serve. And it didn't matter that he didn't know the words because he just wept through the entire thing, offering to people what he knew he didn't deserve to be able to, but God had freedom, and I called him to offer God's grace to others. And the coolest moment was when his friends at the end came up. And as he's crying, serving them communion, they were crying as well. And to see people living in honesty knowing that they were forgiven, knowing that they were loved, knowing what it meant to have Jesus as more than just a teacher, but as Savior. And the brotherhood that created because all of these young business guys were able to be honest because they knew they were all there for the same reason. Sinners saved by grace. To see men able to express their emotions in front of people just crying. It was a moment where you sit there and go, that's what church is. That's what it's supposed to be. That's what it's meant to look like. Right there. I've been thinking about Drew this week as I've been reflecting on the scripture passage, and I invite you to maybe have him and that moment in your mind as well. Text for today is from Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. And I invite you to listen to God's word to us today. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to him, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or what opinions or thoughts we walk in here with, we would experience your gospel, your good news today and it would change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So friends, this is the third week of a five-week series that we're starting the year with. It's a series where we're just looking at different questions from the scripture. We started the first week by looking at the first question God asked of humanity in the Bible. Not starting the year with making resolutions, but the first question God asks the people is, where are you? He asked that to Adam and Eve when they're hiding in the garden. And we ask you to start the year by just sort of asking yourselves, where am I? As 2023 begins. Not what am I going to do. Where am I relationally? Where am I in my marriage? Where am I in my friendships? Where am I spiritually? Where am I emotionally? Last week, we invited you to hold out some of those places when you looked at where you are and move to the second question. Do you want to be made well? And those places where life isn't the way we want it to be, what does it mean to answer that question? Do you want to be made well, as Jesus asks at the Pool of Bethesda? And how do you and I understand that this year is not about our determination, but joining God in the new thing God's doing in our life? What does that look like? And I hope you've been thinking about that question this week. You could really spend the entire year back and forth on those two questions. Every day, just sort of going, where am I? And do I want to be made well? It really is a kind of framework by which we could... Uh, build our year now this third week the question doesn't quite build in the same way but it's a question that applies to all parts of our lives and I would submit to you today that it is the single most important question that anyone will ever ask you it's the question that Jesus asks of the disciples and that I'm going to invite you to think about in your own mind and heart this day when Jesus looks at him and says who do you say that I am and who do you say, if you think about it, who Jesus is? Now, this is actually, if you were listening to the passage, the, first, the second of two questions. And the first question uh, leads into it. The first question, the Jesus movement is growing. By Matthew 16, there are a lot of people who are following him. And he goes into Caesarea Philippi. And as the crowds are there, he sort of looks at him and he goes, hey, man, what are people saying about me? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they pay him some compliments. Like, oh, people are saying that some say you're Elijah and some say that you're John the Baptist and some say that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Just like where Drew was, where maybe some of us are. It's like, we think you're a really important person. We think you're a great teacher. We think you're a great prophet. This is a compliment that the crowds are paying. These are some of the the great leaders of of the Bible. And Jesus then looks at him and says, and how about you? It's a probing personal question. And who do you say that I am? And Peter has this moment where he says, and it's the first time in Matthew and it changes everything, I believe that you are the Messiah. Peter's like the kid in class that hand always shoots up, right? He's like always quick out of the line, oh, I know that one. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. And, and Jesus responds to him by saying, Peter, blessed are you. That's the right answer. I'm not just a teacher. I'm not just a prophet. I am the Messiah, the Savior. And, and so upon you, I will build my church. You are the rock upon which I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades won't prevail against it, and whatever you bind up in, in, in heaven will be bound up on earth, and whatever you loose in heaven will be loosed on earth, and you are given the keys to the kingdom. It's this amazing reward. And so I ask you to think again. Who do you say Jesus is? Now for those of us who just say that he is a teacher, um, that, that should be something I hope that all of us think. You can believe he's both a great teacher and Messiah. But I would ask you to say, if if you think he's a great teacher, to think about this. How much of his teachings do you follow? Like do we treat it like a, a required course that's really important, or are we more like a senior in high school taking an elective going grades don't really matter here, right? So for instance, there are certain themes in Jesus' teaching. Uh, Love your neighbor as yourself. Who's my neighbor? Every single person in the world, whether you like them or not. You should serve them and their well-being and think about promoting them as much as you think about promoting yourself and your children. So I ask you today, if that's what he is, a teacher, and those are some of his teachings, who here today, and I would love it if one of you was bold enough to do it, would raise your hand and say, oh, i do that. Every moment of every day, I am concerned about promoting the welfare of every person on earth as much as I think about myself. And as much as I think about my children exactly it's important to see that if what we think of as Jesus is just teacher that this crumbles very quickly because we don't follow don't be selfish okay <laughs> be less self-centered okay I'm glad someone I, what's gonna save the world is not content the internet is full of content Content is not what, oh, I just didn't know. Oh, I'm supposed to love people? Oh, I just wish somebody had told me. Okay, I'll do it. There's something more in us that is broken in that. That's what I mean when it's like, what does it mean to say I'm one of the good guys? What does that look like? If Jesus is teacher, what we see is is that that may not be enough. What we also see is that Jesus as Messiah, we have to kind of investigate too. Because Peter's understanding of Messiah here versus Messiah at the end of the Gospel of Matthew is different, okay? So when Peter says here in Matthew 16, you are the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God, what that means is, uh, it was very commonly understood at the time, that the Messiah was gonna be sent by God to free the people of Israel from Rome, this brutal military dictatorship that they lived under. The Messiah was understood as having the power to fix what's wrong with the world out here. If they fix that, then everything will be okay. And actually what's important to understand is churches are full of people whose definition of Messiah is very similar to that. We should feel the conviction of this for a minute. Some of you have heard this word. One of John's uh, professors at Princeton Seminary, Kenda Creasy-Dean, uh, led a project that did extensive looking at surveys of American Christians, churchgoers. And what they found is not a, so much of a vibrant faith of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, but what she came to call moralistic, therapeutic deism. That's what American Christianity has become. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. God is God, God is there, God is powerful, but God is moral, God gives us rules, right? And we're supposed to follow those rules and if we follow enough of those rules, then God's design is for us to become happy. God exists that if I do a good enough and I follow enough rules, I'm, God's gonna make me happy. If I, like Peter, answer the right questions, then God's gonna fix what's out there and make my life better. The Messiah has come to deliver us from what's wrong with outside of us in the world. Change circumstances and everything will be okay. You've got to understand how the cross would have just absolutely crushed Peter and the disciples. Because if Jesus is only a teacher, his students fail at the moment of trial, right? Oh, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of peace. What does Peter do? The rock? Peter first draws out his sword and chops a dude's ear off when they come to arrest Jesus. Jesus has to rebuke him for it. And that's not that it's a little self-correction. Then all the disciples, including the one who betrayed him, run and scatter and save themselves. And when Peter is then asked, as he's watching Jesus being beaten, don't you know him? Peter goes, never seen him before. Three times, denies him. The rock crumbles. Not because the power of Hades comes to get in. It doesn't even take that. It just takes a couple of Roman soldiers. And the rock upon whom the church will be built crumbles. Jesus' teacher or Jesus' Messiah who comes to fix the world out there, the cross just destroys that. Just as moralistic, therapeutic deism is part of why the church is shrinking, because when people go, oh, life's actually really hard, and what do we do with that even when external... It's not just about me following enough rules for God to make me happy. We wander away. No, I think that Jesus and Peter are speaking different languages here. I think Jesus is speaking a language. I think Peter is giving a pre-cross definition of Messiah. And Jesus affirms him going, you're right, I'm the Messiah on you, I'm going to build the church. But Jesus has the cross in mind. Jesus knows in that moment that Peter is going to betray him three times. Jesus knows that the rock will crumble under his own ability. The gospel is not that Peter's resume gets him the right answer to follow the rules of his really strong teacher to change the external circumstances. The gospel is that Jesus has come to heal what's broken in us, not outside of us. Jesus hasn't come to save him from the Romans. Jesus has come to save us from ourselves. Or as John defined last week, I'm quoting you a lot today, In the prayer of confession, (laughs) sin is our ability to mess things up. He's come for that. And what he set up instead of a kingdom of rules is what some theologians call an economy of grace. That's what it means to say that Jesus is more than teacher. He's Messiah. is an economy of grace. A grace that starts with our relationship with God. We see this in Peter. That when Peter encounters Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and who looks at him and says, I know what you've done and how you've crumbled in the moment of trial. What does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't shame him. He doesn't kick him out. He doesn't tell him he's no longer the rock. What he does is, is that he forgives him. He, he he opens his arms to him. He says, you have been washed clean. As the Apostle Paul says, grace means that you and I have been credited with the righteousness of Jesus that that whatever you confessed in the prayer of confession today that if we are people who claim that Jesus is Messiah that what Jesus response to that is you are forgiven you are credited with the righteousness of Jesus when I look at you no matter what you have done this week I see the beauty of my son in you and if you're sitting there going I've heard that quote before and that's what it is you're not paying attention this is the greatest news ever that God looks at me and says, you're forgiven. It's like, yeah, but I did it last week too. Yeah, you're forgiven. It's an economy of grace. And that economy then spreads out to how we treat each other. That is, God has forgiven us, just like what drew you, then extend that grace to other people. We shouldn't be a community that's shocked when people fight or when they let us down or when they're imperfect. No matter who you are, no matter who you're sitting next to, no matter what car they drive, no matter what colleges their kids go to, no matter what their resume says, the only thing that unifies us in this room is that we who are Christians say we are broken, we are imperfect, and we are incapable of making it right. And God forgives us and loves us anyway. And so we should be people who understand that others might let us down, who understand that others are going to make mistakes, who are going to understand that, and not that makes it okay, but we can extend grace to them because we have been forgiven. We should be known, we're not, but we should be known in this world as the most forgiving, kind, humble community. That's what an economy of grace looks like. One of the things that we do is we spend a lot of time here uh, in different pockets of community at Covenant. We're going to be starting next week inviting ways for you to get involved again uh, in small groups and Bible studies and uh, mentoring relationships uh, in all kinds of ways. We really think about this a lot at a big church. How do you find community to live in that economy of grace? For many of us, small groups is one place that we found that. I know through the years it's been a hugely transformative thing for me. And I've been thinking this week, and maybe you could think, and it might give you comfort as we close, of what it would have been like to be in a, what would it be like to be in a small group with Peter? The rock. If we have the definition of rock, like, oh man, he gives the right answers and everything, we would just be like either staying quiet or just Peter, tell us what you think, or, you know, or hiding from Peter, and it's like, oh, I had a pretty good day. and you know. In my world, I think of it this way. I feel called to be a part of building a church. So when I hear, like, upon you, the church will be built, like, there's a lot, and I am aware, no matter how much I feel called to that, um, of my profound ability on a daily basis to mess that up. It is, my ability to mess up my call is breathtaking uh, on, a, on a daily basis. Uh, and, you know, and so it's like every day I could come in, go back to your small group Peter, and it's like, you know, how was today? Well, I didn't, you know, I honestly didn't really pray. I I probably responded to an email in a way that might not be how Jesus would have. I, uh, you know, probably didn't, I made a mistake here. I probably said something. I don't know if I should have said it that way or if it was, you know, i just kind of aware of all of these places that I feel like I just didn't live into the call. And to imagine that the rock upon whom the church is built, that his response to you and I and whatever that looks like is like, brother, I get it. And that's what actually makes him the rock. I get it. Three times when he most needed me, I denied him. But the amazing part is, God still used me to go build a church built upon grace rather than rules and laws. So you know what I bet? I bet, Thomas, tomorrow there's gonna be all kinds of amazing opportunities that God's gonna keep throwing your way. Isn't that good news? That's the rock. What qualifies you to know you're not qualified. I've been thinking about my friend Drew this week. When Drew moved from Jesus as teacher, or prophet, or holy person to Jesus as Messiah, his life really changed. Changed a whole lot more to have Jesus as Messiah than Jesus as teacher. He changed some patterns in his life met somebody. He got married. He kept crushing it in business, but he also started thinking in his commercial real estate platform about affordable housing in Atlanta, how to start making uh, inroads for people to be able to break in and, and find a home. He started really thinking about what it meant to extend grace and forgiveness where he lived, where he worked, where he played. It was amazing to watch God get old was like He didn't come to church bored anymore late. He actually would sit there and worship and he would just close his eyes and shake his head a lot. Just nod as he listened. And I've been thinking about Drew because I recently found out he passed away at age 32. He was mountain biking with his brother on a hot day and suffered heat stroke out on the trail and they couldn't get him to a doctor in time. I'm grateful for his life. I'm grateful for his witness to me as he wept, as he served people with a grace he knew that he didn't deserve, but could do it anyway. I'm grateful for the way that his life changed. And I am grateful that he had answered the question of who did he say Jesus was? And that as he breathed his last, As every single one of us will. He knew the answer to that question wasn't a teacher who was going to grade how well he had done. It was not a Messiah who said, You either gave the right answers or you're kicked out. It was a God and Messiah of grace who welcomed him with open arms. Brother, welcome home. Who do you say that Jesus is? It's the single most important question you will ever think about in your life. May the grace and love of God overwhelm you today. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would speak to us and may your grace and love rain down upon us your undeserving and yet so deeply loved people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.